Hi everyone, this is a Barclay Damon Live broadcast where we discuss all things L&E, labor, and employment. I'm Ari, let's dig in. Hey guys, welcome to All Year New York State Division of Human Rights Questions Answered, a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the Regional Director. We are back this week with Debbie Kent, who is the New York State Division of Human Rights Regional Director for the Buffalo Office. Debbie, welcome back. Hi, good to be back. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, thanks so much for joining us. So, Debbie, last week we talked about, uh, you know, the complaint, how the division is structured, um, you know, its screening process, um, and, you know, how the charge, or excuse me, how the complaint process kind of plays out pre-investigation. Mm -hmm. So I thought this week we would dive and dig right back in to the investigation process, just for our listeners. A complaint is filed, the division begins to investigate the allegations in the complaint. So Debbie, my first question is, who actually completes the investigation or does the investigation from the division side? We have investigators, their official title is human rights specialists. Mm -hmm. uh, we have human rights specialist ones who are our main investigators. Uh, we have human rights specialists too, who supervise the investigators, but they also do investigations. And sometimes I do investigations as well. So, whole so you, team. Yes, and you're wearing many hats, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that is helpful to know, Debbie. And can you tell our listeners just generally, uh, you know, what does the investigation entail? What, what does the investigation mm -hmm. look like? Okay. So the first thing we do, at, at, I think I mentioned last time, was that uh, we serve the complaint on the respondent. They have an opportunity to respond in writing. Uh, to the allegations. Once we get that, we send that out to the complainant and they get an opportunity to respond to that, which we call a rebuttal. Uh, so once those are in the file, that, that's kind of the, ba the basic uh, positions of the parties on the issue. So uh, then the case is assigned to an investigator. The investigator is going to review that information and uh, determine the course of their investigation. And the investigation can take many different uh, avenues and different tools, depending on the issues and, and how the investigator believes they can best obtain information to get a clear picture of you know what's happened or to verify information that the parties have uh, talked about in their position statements. So no necessarily one size fits all rubric for every investigation, it sounds like. <laughs> No, we have, uh, you know, we have wide latitude under the law to conduct our investigations. And so we do uh, multiple different uh, methods. Uh, Two-party conferences is one of those methods, and that's where we would have the parties come together, uh, bring their witnesses, bring requested documents, and uh, we would go over that, uh, the allegations and their positions at that time and, and go through the evidence at that time with both parties present. Um, you know, that is a, uh, you know, that's like a real-time kind of situation where it's it's not it's not a hearing, but the, both parties are there. There's no cross-examination. The questions are only coming from the um, investigator uh, that is conducting the conference. And the, the complainant, though, can respond right then, you know, their rebuttal, right then to anything they hear. Um, whereas if we uh, do uh, maybe a one-party conference or separate witness interviews or interrogatories, those types of things, are, those reports are gonna be sent to the complainant 
and they're going to be given a time to respond. So it's all the same information, it's just different ways of uh, getting the information back and forth between the parties. Absolutely. And I think we'll definitely, um, if you'll permit me, Debbie, get into a little more detail on a couple of the things you just mentioned sure. in a few minutes. One of the questions that we get a lot um, from employers is whether in the um, course of the investigation, the division uh, investigator can contact current and former employees to ask about the allegations and the complaint. So wondering if you can shed a little bit of light on that question, because it does come up quite a bit for us. The division can interview anybody we want to interview. <laughs> so whether that <laughs> is, you know, is, if they have relevant information yeah, yeah, for the yeah. claim, obviously. <laughs> right, but we certainly course. can interview uh, former employees. Um, and uh, we would, uh, you know, try to get their contact information. You know, sometimes the complainants have it. Sometimes we need to get their last known contact information from the respondent. And sometimes we just have to do our own, you know, research to get that information. Right. If it's a, a current employee, we would probably, you know, reach out to the respondent to try to make them available. Um, uh, but sometimes the complainant also has their contact information, and uh, depending on the level of uh, where the employee is, uh, you know, we may just contact them directly. So we're going to be looking at, um, you know, who who is this person and what what is their relationship to the company, and that's going to determine whether or not the um, company can uh, be involved in the interviews or their attorney. So, right. Yeah. If yeah. You, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, sorry, Debbie. I didn't mean to talk over you. You just anticipated my next question, which was, if an employer wants to be involved in that interview of a current employee, may the employer be involved, or how how does that work? Right. If a, if a an employee is of a high enough level of management where they are legally indistinguishable from the company. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, then then the um, respondent or the representative would have a right to participate in that um, okay. interview process. And um, if the, if not, then you know we may uh, elect to interview them separately. Also, there may be situations where the attorney is representing both the company and the individuals. Obviously, if they're being represented, their their representative could be in there. So uh, we would have to just look to see, uh, you know, who, who they are, what type of job they're doing, and whether or not it's appropriate for the, you know, someone to be in there. Makes but sense. We usually do let them know that if they feel they're being retaliated against for participating in the process, then they certainly have the right to file their own retaliation complaint. Right. Understood. So kind of the flip side, Debbie, can an employer ask the division to interview individuals at the company or in the employer's, you know, under the employer's control that the employer believes may have relevant information to the allegations in the complaint? Well, sure. Either party can let us know about witnesses that they feel are relevant. and But the ultimate uh, decision on interviewing is going to be made by the investigator. So they may ask some information as to what, you know, what uh, information or evidence, uh, what did this person witness that they're going to be a relevant person to interview as part of this process. Um, 
if if they are relevant, then absolutely, you know, we would move forward with an interview. Um, there are instances when you know someone wants to have a witness who, you know, stopped working there three years ago, didn't see anything that happened during the course of the period of time that we're looking at, but they just want to say, you know, this person is a great great person, or yeah, they were great when I right. worked them. So it's not it's not relevant really to the matter that we're looking at. So we're not going to spend time and resources, in, you know, interviewing people who are not really relevant. But um, sometimes respondents will send us um, statements, written statements from individuals who uh, witnessed something. Right. Um, so that's fine. We can, we can put those in, in the case and we can, uh, you know, give it the appropriate weight. Uh, sometimes we have to reach out to those individuals to try to verify that you know they they made this statement, or we may there may be additional questions beyond what was in the writing. Yes, great. Thanks for clearing that up, Debbie. So I know that you you mentioned you know the tools that an investigator has and a little bit about the two party conference. Can you just explain a little bit um, for our listeners the differences between the two party conference, the backbinding conference? And just an interview maybe with an investigator because i think maybe it's just the lingo but just and the fact that there are different tools available i think it can be a yeah. little confusing <laughs> i think that two-party conference and fact-finding conference are all often used interchangeably okay but i think any kind of um, meeting or interview could be fact-finding so it's you know but i think that that is a term that people use <laughs> to mean a two-party conference um, for a period of time. So uh, I, I don't I don't know if there's any difference between the two. Um, so an individual um, interview or one-party conference, um, that's basically, it's just the difference of who's there, who, who's at these conferences at the time. Um, if it's a two-party conference, um, the, the complainant's still gonna get that information it's just going to be, you know, immediate while they're there. If it's um, one party conference, they're going to get that information in a report. And the two party conference, Debbie, would happen after the submission of the response or position statement on behalf of the respondent. Yeah. Is that typically generally, the case, or generally the case is not going to be uh, assigned to a specific investigator until we receive the response and rebuttal. Is it, it really just makes sense to guide uh, our investigation once we have we have some clear idea about the positions of the parties, um, and uh, you know if they're um, claiming certain information or certain um, position, uh, that's going to guide us as to okay, so how can we verify this position, and you know who might have information on that that we might need to interview? What documents can we request? You know, if we're mentioning surveillance video and is that something we can see so we're, you know it really helps to guide us in our investigation once we have that information otherwise if you know if we try to do it beforehand you know we're not going to necessarily know everything to ask for and that's going to just duplicate things you know right once yes. We get it. yes that makes total sense so i know we've discussed uh Debbie, the, what we call the position statement or the respondent's response to the allegations in the complaint. One thing I wanted to ask you about was a request for information because we see a lot of these. So I was just wondering if you could tell our listeners, you know, what that is and, and really what its purpose is. 
request for information, the purpose is um, sometimes we don't need to interview people. And so the, we just might need to see documents and other evidence uh, to verify the, the positions, as I said. Uh, so that is just a, uh, a document that we're going to put all the information and evidence that we want to see. Uh, sometimes we might have questions in there or provide, you know, provide comparative information and, and things like that. So we're going to list all those things in that request for information um, and send that out. Now, um, we send requests for information not just to respondents. So sometimes we are sending that to the complainants as well because they may have information and evidence that we would like to see as well. Understood. So Debbie, the information that is provided by respondents or complainants, but actually let me back up. I'll just say respondents. Mm -hmm. Is that information shared with the complaining party? Yes. Every, uh, according to our process, um, everything that comes into the file is available for both parties to see actually. Um, but the response and any additional information we do share with the complainant and then we give them a time to review that and uh, provide any feedback on that. Um, sometimes we need to follow up depending on what their information is and sometimes they don't give us any additional information. So, you know, Understood. scenarios. Definitely want to get into the information sharing uh, component you just mentioned, mm -hmm. Debbie. Before I do, um, I wanted to ask, do, do you have any tips for respondents uh, responding to requests for information? Well, um, first of all, I would just say, make sure that you're responding in a narrative form to each allegation in the complaint. Uh, sometimes we get back responses and, and they may not answer a particular allegation. And I think even if even if they feel there's nothing there, you know, that, that needs to be mentioned as well. So it's just so we, you know, don't think, okay, well, why are they, you know, avoiding responding to this particular allegation? But it also means we have to follow up. Right. So um, uh, that's important. And uh, to respond to requests in a timely manner, that's important as well. So Debbie, sounds to me like, and I don't want to um, put words in your mouth, but what you're saying is provide a meaningful and complete response to the allegations in the complaint, meaning if there's some fact out there, no matter how crazy the em employer or respondent thinks that the allegation may be, address it and don't just leave it hanging out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And in I term, mean, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Debbie. I was going to say, if, if what we have in, initially is the complaint. That's what the complainant is saying. If, you know, the response is the respondent's uh, opportunity to get their position out there on what happened. And if they don't, then all we have is what the complainant's saying. And I don't think, you know, that the, that the respondents want that. And I just want to add that also if uh, the respondents can provide um documentation or any evidence to support their positions that they're making in their, in their uh, response, uh, that's really helpful as well. I mean, we can always request it later, but it can be really helpful to have it up front. And there are times, uh, you know, with some some uh, law firms or attorneys will, will send that information. And, you know, then there's sometimes there's not anything to ask for, or very little to ask for, because we've gotten most of what we would ask for. 
Makes sense. So basically provide the complete response and don't be afraid to submit documents to the division that would support the uh, arguments or the information contained in the response. Because it might even obviate the need for a request for information, which saves both the division and the employer some time, I guess. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Great. So Debbie, you mentioned um, a, a few minutes ago the rebuttal. So I kind of wanted to, to spend some time talking about this. So for our listeners, we know this, Debbie, the complaint is submitted. The respondent submits its response or position statement to the complaint. And um, there is opportunity for what we call in the business as rebuttal. <laughs> Can you just explain, Debbie, for our listeners what that means and whether the employer then has the ability to respond to the rebuttal? Well, the rebuttal is um, hopefully uh, designed so that uh, the complainant could uh, read the information and if they disagree with something or they have some type of information or evidence to show that that information is not correct or um, something of that nature, then this is their opportunity to put that in writing to us. Um, so they may direct us to other types of evidence and, and um witnesses or other information that uh, could support their, their position on that as well. That's great information, Debbie. And with respect to the rebuttal, which is really the complaining party's ability to respond to what the respondent has said in its position statement, does the employer or respondent then get a copy or can the respondent request a copy of that rebuttal? How, do, how does that work? Yeah, the respondent can certainly request a copy of the rebuttal or any other information in the file, um, and and we're usually happy to provide that. That that is a and if they want to provide a response to the rebuttal, they can. Um, we don't require that, but certainly as long as the case is still open, um, that will go into the file and be considered. Obviously, we can't go back and forth forever, you know, because if we get another response from them about the rebuttal, we have to send that to the complainant. <laughs> right. uh, so you can see where this could go on and on and on. But um, certainly any uh, any submissions um, by either party that come in, you know, even if not requested, uh, will go into the file and be considered during that, uh, you know, our final determination process. Got it. And you kind of anticipated, I think, my next question, Debbie, which is, you know, we've talked about this investigatory process and kind of what that entails in terms of the complaint and responding and interviews. How long typically, emphasis on typically, uh, does an investigation take? Right. Uh, so I think there's a goal of 180 days, um, but, uh, you know, that is not always realistic and it doesn't always happen. But we certainly try to, you know, that is the goal uh, that we're trying to achieve. And um, you know, just like any other business, uh, we have been impacted by the pandemic as well. Right. And, uh, you know, staffing and, and hiring freezes and various things. Uh, so we are working diligently to get back to, um, you know, getting where we're meeting uh, that, that goal. So. I think we all are. <laughs> <laughs> So Debbie, um, this has been a great conversation about the investigation piece of it. Um, before I kind of turn to what the possible outcomes are, I just wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, the best piece of advice that you have for respondents going through this investigation process. What do you think is the most important thing for them to know or keep in mind as 
we're cooperating with the division to investigate the allegations? Well, I think the most important thing to know is that we are neutral. So we're not um, representing the complainant. And really, we, we want to enforce New York State human rights law, but we are, you know, we don't want to enforce it, in a, you know, inappropriately. Um, so we are just trying to get the best information that we can, a clear picture of what happened so that we can make the best decision um, going forward on that. Yeah, I think that's that's such good advice, um, Debbie, because, you know, I think the reality is if you've been named in a complaint um, as a, a business or an employer, you know, there's it's definitely an element of shock, I think, and it's definitely a, a source of anxiety. But I think it's so important you pointed that out because the division really exists just simply to investigate what the allegations are. And I think the best thing that employers and we can do is just help facilitate that investigation in the most cooperative way possible to make it efficient for everyone, right? That's the goal, at least. <laughs> nobody nobody likes getting the complaint, you know? So I just, you know, tell people, I, I know you're not happy about it, but we have to go through the process. So if you're providing information, um, we'll get through this process. And, and if, if there has been no discrimination, then that's what the findings will show. Right. Right. Okay, Debbie. So I think let's leave the investigation behind. I did just want to talk briefly about uh, the possible outcomes of the investigation. So as you know, Debbie, for our next segment, uh, Division of Human Rights Attorney Catherine Ostrowski-Martin will be joining us and she'll kind of take us through the next phase of um, what happens with a complaint before the division. But if you could kind of brief that for us and just tell us generally, generally what are the possible outcomes once an investigation is complete. Right. So um, once the investigation is complete, uh, I ultimately have to make a determination as to whether or not there's enough evidence to go forward to a public hearing. Uh, so there's either going to be a no probable cause finding or a probable cause finding. If there is not enough evidence to support a violation of human rights law, then it's going to receive a no probable cause finding. And then we're going to close the case at that point, although the complainant does have appeal rights to state Supreme Court. Um, they can also request a reopening through the division as well. Um, so they have 60 days to file their appeal in state Supreme Court. And if the uh, court deems that uh, there was something that was missed or something more that should be looked into, then the case may get reopened um, and then we would uh, complete that component. Um, if there is enough evidence to go forward, uh, the case will receive a probable cause finding and then it will be scheduled for a public hearing at that point. Now the respondent does have um, rights to request a reopening as well at that point. Um, if it's section 465.20b, well, gen generally we call it like a 20b reopening, uh, but part of the law, it gives them the right to uh, request a review of that uh, determination of probable cause. And, uh, if, you know, the, that, but that's us, you know, reviewing it. And then if we determine that there is something, again, that needs to uh, be looked at and that, that wasn't considered or whatever uh, situation that happened, um, you know, those could be reopened as well. If not, um, if it's not reopened, uh, then the case goes forward to a public hearing and it's heard in front of an administrative law judge. We have our own process here. 
example, which is different from an EEOC where their cases could end up in federal court. Right. And could you just, um, because our listeners, Debbie, if they're kind of following our, along our segment related to uh, discrimination in the workplace, can you just elaborate, um, you know, just a little bit on the difference? Because as you mentioned, you know, with the EEOC, the EEOC has the ability to kind of sue a, re sue a respondent directly in federal court if conciliation fails. Is there any kind of counterpart to that under the New York State human rights law or it's the private litigants or the complaining party's um, ability to pursue further legal action once you have closed your investigation? The complainants can take their case into state court. So once they've exhausted their um, administrative remedies, so to speak, they can um, decide not to go through the hearing process and they can take the case into uh, state court and or federal court if that applies as well. Uh, so they would need to uh, request that and then we could um, annul the case. I'll give it in a moment and uh, allow them to take it into court. So that's great information, Debbie, and thank you so much. You've really taken our listeners through the complaint process, the investigation process, and then, you know, the possible determinations. And before I let you go, sadly, for the segment, I wanted to ask you one final question, which is, what do you think an employer can or should do to make an investigation go smoothly or just to make it easier for the division? Yeah, I think I've already mentioned pretty much the, the things that they can do is just be patient, um, you know, uh, send in the responses and, and try to answer things fully, um, cooperate with your investigator, and, uh, you know, that will help us all to smoothly get through the process. Yes. Wise words, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Debbie, thank you so much again for joining us. I know this has been so informative. It's been informative for me. I know our listeners so appreciate the information. I know how busy you are. So thank you again so much for joining. Thank you. Yeah. To our listeners, next week, as I mentioned, we will have New York State Division of Human Rights Attorney Catherine Ostrowski-Martin on, and she will pick up where Debbie left off and talk about um, the possible determination and really what happens next. So you definitely don't want to miss it. Tune in. Thanks again, Debbie. I appreciate it. <laughs> The Labor Employment Podcast is available on BarclayDamon.com, YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Like, follow, share, and continue to listen. Thanks. This material is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a legal opinion, and no attorney-client relationship has been established or implied. Thanks for listening. <laughs>